this um, <clears throat> this topic kind of came out of out of an experience uh, that I had uh, for our March for Life trip up in D.C. Uh, I mentioned it one of the one of the masses uh, is that every year uh, when we go up on the trip, we usually have a point where we. Uh, split the guys and the girls when we would go to the seminary. So the guys get the tour of the seminary, encourage the vocation, the priesthood idea, and the ladies all go and they have a separate room. Uh, and so the seminarians and the priests talk with the men, uh, and the sisters who are with us talk with the ladies. I've heard the men's talk a number of times. I've given the men's talk a number of times, so I said, I'm done with that. I'm going to listen to the ladies. <laughs> And so I snuck in the back door as it was just beginning, uh, a, a, room full of, a room full of the young ladies and the sisters in the front. Uh, and I walked in and some of them were like, why are you here? <laughs> Don't worry, I'm just, just listening. You know? And it was so beautiful to hear a sister talk about the gift of femininity, the gift of, of being a woman. Uh, and so I, I came back and I tried to capture that in a little, a little mini homily one of, the, one of the weekday mornings and it was encouraged that I talk about that a little more at some point. And so that's kind of the, the motivation behind this particular, um, this particular, particular topic uh, of the privilege of being a woman. And so <coughs> the, um, we could have made this a six-part series, y'all. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to lie. There, there's there, there's uh, a ton out there that, that should be said, uh, but unfortunately, I'm going to kind of have to narrow that down of necessity. And so the topic, the, the, the presentation title comes from a book of the same title from Alice von Hildebrand. Uh, and so it's a wonderful book. It's, it's rather accessible. It's very it kind of sensible as you read through it. Uh, it's unlike the one that she authored, that she was the the foreword for the author of Gertrude von Lefort's The Eternal Woman. This one's much more philosophical. I started in this one, and I was like, oh, goodness, that's thick. It's beautiful, but I'll have to read it, and go back and read it, and go back and read it. And so eventually I was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go a little different direction and, and start here, too. And so... Um, this presentation is, is mainly off of um, von Hildebrand's book here. Up here, uh, uh, in addition, I have a number of other books um, that may or may not be worth, uh, worth your time in reading. I, I, and they're from my personal library, so I think they're worth your time reading. Um, one that I recently got, I found out about, and, and I'm intrigued by, but I wasn't able to read it before now, was Authority of the, Women, the Authority of Women in the Church. Uh, a book by Monica Migliorino Miller, uh, with this foreword by uh, Dr. Scott Hahn. Uh, so this is a new, a new publication, uh, one that's not as new but is of uh, of great value as St. John Paul II's Mulieris Dignitatem, one of his apostolic letters on the dignity and vocation of women. So worth the read. If you want to go old school and get a little crazy, you can go with St. John Chrysostom on marriage and family life. This is one of the ones they had us read at the seminary. Uh, St. John Paul's uh, book, Love and Responsibility, uh, is, a, is a phenomenal work, uh, and Dr. Edward Shree has kind of synthesized it in a much more approachable, um, kind of immediately applicable book uh, called Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. I have Lorraine, M Lorraine Murray's book, Confessions of an Ex-Feminist. Uh, again, I haven't read it but it's from Ignatius, which is a great publisher. And surely it's that, it's that story of recognizing the gift of the feminine genius that St. John Paul went off and talk about. 
if you just got a lot of free time on your hands, <laughs> you can re-jump all the seconds theology of the body. <laughs> uh, yeah, most of us don't have this kind of free time, right? Um, <clears throat> but the thing about this one is it's broken up in individual talks. Uh, these were the Wednesday audiences given by John Paul II uh, as, as Holy Father. So every Wednesday, the Pope usually gives an audience from the balcony of, of, of St. Peter's, uh, not from the balcony, from, from the front of St. Peter's, and kind of addresses a general topic. A lot of times they'll have a theme that they go for a while. Uh, St. John Paul wrote his uh, on, on the theology of the body, which in, in involves certainly a lot of this, the same reality of the gift of women in the life of the church and the life of the world. And so I'll have all these up here if you want to look them at the end. I want to start with the, uh, the opening statements, the opening um, words from von Hildebrand's book, which are certainly, they catch the ear. And so she begins with this, part one, arguments against the privilege of being a woman. The secular arguments is this, how can it be a privilege for a woman to be called the second sex, to be considered less talented, less strong? less creative, less interesting, less intelligent, less artistic than our male counterpart. All great creations of mankind have been made by men in architecture, in fine arts, in theology, in philosophy, in science, and technology. The history of the world is mostly the history of the achievement of human males. From time to time, a female is mentioned, but she is then commended for her manly qualities and, and for having a virile mind, a manly mind. So others uh, freely, um, others freely speak of this. And I'm just kind of skipping a little section. It says on the other hand, uh, often we look down upon those who are designated as effeminate or womanish. And so it's this this starting point where she immediately says, okay, you know, she because von Hildebrand is approaching things from a secular world, recognizing that the world we live in says one thing, and the church often says something else. The world says. What is the privilege of being a woman? How is it a privilege to be, again, as you said, the second sex, the weaker sex, as the scriptures refer? And that's her starting point. Is her, is her desire to acknowledge the fact that although those terms exist, there's a beautiful reality that corresponds to them. And it's one that, that's absolutely phenomenal to be able to be mindful of. I recognize as I'm getting into this, a lot of the things that I'm saying, you'll probably be like, duh. <laughs> but the simple fact is, that's good, <laughs> because you're women, <laughs> right? A lot of the things that I'm, you know, as I'm reading the book, I'm going, that's awesome. Like, good job. Like, I, I didn't think about that before. And those are things that probably many of the women in this room just take as normal presumptions of daily life. And that's part of the beauty of it. And so, um, while, while the, the, the talk was, you know, kind of explicitly focused on, on this presentation, it's got me wanting to read more, too, <laughs> you know, so, it can, so I can, you know, just kind of understand and, and just for myself, um, be able to grow my understanding of, that, of the gift of the feminine genius um, in our midst. <coughs> and so, a lot of times when, uh, basically, I'm just going to more or less just go through the outline and, and, synth and, and, and kind of shorten uh, what von Hildebrand says. And so if, if you don't like it or disagree with it, cool. I'm not the one saying it. I may agree with it, but I'm not the one saying it. 
Um, and as, and as, as I'm able to present it, uh, she does a much better job. Uh, and so I certainly would encourage you um, to be able to, to make the time to, to sit down and read through this. I forget how many pages. 108 pages. So a pretty sizable read and a small book, you know. Uh, and so just certainly, again, certainly worth your time and your read. And so she begins recognizing the, the, the feminist response and the, and the rise of feminism uh, in our culture today. And, you know, the, there's, there's a sense in which feminism isn't necessarily bad. It's, it's acknowledging the, the need for a woman to be valued in our culture. That should be done. That should be part of a good, healthy culture is that women should have value. If it's not, there's a problem. There's a major problem. And so there's, a, there's an importance in, a, in acknowledging the need for the primacy of women in the discussion and culture. But unfortunately, she says that feminism, in trying to exalt woman, has basically stripped woman of femininity itself. So many of the attempts for feminism have basically said, we need to lift women up and to make them equal in all things. And so essentially... We take away those things which are typically feminine traits. We strip ourselves of those things. We strip ourselves of the burden of having to bear children. And then we can be like men. And now we're even. Think about that. Think about that. Feminism, so much of the approach today is if we can become like men, then we're finally women. Which is foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. And yet so much of our culture is bought into that idea. To become like men is the exact opposite. And so the, she begins by first acknowledging the fact that, the, yeah, the, the, secular, the secular ideas, especially in our current, our current culture, is heavily in that push. But we are Christians, we acknowledge things not through the eyes of a secular view, but through that of a, of a Christian one. We acknowledge things seeing the gospel in action, taking the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and out of the whole of the scripture to bring them to bear upon what we see. And so we acknowledge the fact that in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He created Adam first, and then he created Eve. Hence, the second sex. And a lot of times that, that could be perceived as a, a negative thing. You know, the, it, it could be twisted as a negative, but it all could be, can be twisted as a positive. The God created man, he was like, we still got some work to do. <laughs> you know? And then he created woman, he's like, all right, we're good now. <laughs> you know? Simply, I mean, she puts it in different words, but that's the reality. The woman, is the, the woman is the crown of creation. She's not just second place. She's not made from dirt. She's pulled forth from the side of the one who's created in the image of God. There's a value in that. There's a mystery in that. All throughout the scripture, even in the Old Testament, when, when the woman wasn't as, as prevalent in the culture as, as, as we see you know, that, that reference, how a lot of times the, 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 the culture, the, the, the history of humanity is so often involving the accomplishments, of, the accomplishments of men. The scripture shows us countless times where it's the woman who had such importance. 
over and over and over again. We see the women creeping into the picture to be able to change the course of history. It was at St. Luke's Gospel. St. Luke's Gospel has the, the one of the, the genealogy. Normally it traces the lineage of the men. And how many times does it bring women into the picture? Recognizing the important role that they had in changing the course of things. The course woman was most transformative in, in the, the, the life of faith of the world in the person of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It was she who was the first and the only to be immaculately conceived. She's the only one to have had that special grace. No man can ever have made that claim. She alone received the, whole, the Holy Spirit into her womb and was able to bear Christ our Savior, God in flesh. No man would ever have been able to claim that for multiple reasons. She alone was there whenever she gave forth her life in the birth of Jesus. And as many times as I can go to the altar and proclaim, this is my body, she can say it more truly than I can. Because the Eucharist is more truly her body, fully and entirely, than it could be mine. Great mysteries of the privilege of one particular woman, but one particular woman who embodies the fullness of femininity in herself. To this we can have... We can add the other things that we simply recognize in the, in the, the, course, of, in, in the course of our devotional life. That seven of the 20 mysteries of the rosary are exclusively focused on the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's a phenomenal, a phenomenal number. Prior to the five added by John Paul, it was seven of 15. She had over 50%. You know, It's a meditation on the life of Christ, but Mary, Mary had seven of the 15. It's a great, a great advantage. How in the Stations of the Cross, the one man, or the two men who are mentioned, right? Pontius Pilate, not good. <laughs> Simon of Cyrene, the cross is thrust upon him. Not because he desired it, but because he was passing by. But who else is there? Veronica with the veil. The women of Jerusalem weeping for Jesus and his blessed mother. And Mary Magdalene, Mary the, Mary the wife of Cleopas and the others who are at the cross. Two men, not in good a place. We got, th- we got St. John, thanks be to God. <laughs> but all the rest were ladies. Again, all of these things point to the gift of femininity, the beauty, the privilege of being a woman, that it's written in your very own heart. Again, we can see other instances of the privilege place of women in the story of salvation. Of course, Blessed Mother holding primacy there. But then close behind, Mary Magdalene. She's the one who first hears the gospel proclamation of the resurrection. She's the one who goes to the disciples and proclaims, He's risen. She's the one who sees the Lord Jesus first when she sees Him in the garden and has that, that profound moment where He calls her by name and she clings to Him. Right? And interestingly enough, something I had not thought of but that um, was explicitly, more explicitly brought forward in, in von Lefort's book, um, The Birth of the Church, the, the height of, of the life of the apostles in a very real sense of Pentecost, is a feminine act. 
Because like Mary, they were receiving the Holy Spirit, that new life might come about, and that Christ might be able to go out and minister. The Pentecost moment was itself a feminine response, a receptivity to God's action. And in doing so, Mother Church came forth. Again, Mother Church, right? Our Mother. And so, we see in the life of the Church, in the life of Christ, in the story of salvation, women hold an incredibly important role. Rather than being anything other than second place, they seem to have first place firmly clinched. And that's not a bad thing. Her first chapter is she acknowledges and begins a discussion on the weaker sex. You know, St. Peter spoke of that, acknowledged, you know, acknowledged women as being the weaker sex. And she begins and she says, well, yes, certainly we can look at that and we can say, you know, physiologically, physically speaking, you know, men are generally stronger. It's a verifiable fact. We can't be upset about that, you know. <laughs> she said, but that's not really the point. Because if all we're going to talk about is physical strength, we're not even talking about anything. What is it we really mean when we discuss the weaker sex? And she acknowledged several points. She said, first of all, whenever we say that, some people, you know, especially women, because usually men aren't that offended by the term, Usually women can see that and experience that as, as an, offensive, an offensive description, an offensive statement. Because a lot of times the, the weakness is, as that opening section talked about, being less intelligent, less talented, less capable, less creative, less, etc., etc., right? And that's a lot of times what's perceived whenever we perceive weakness is... The men are better, the women are not. You know, it's a weakness in comparison, which is not exactly what's intended. She acknowledges weakness in the human person, especially in the feminine. But she says too that whereas you can throw an iron pot all around the room, you treat China with special care. China has great value. A pot? Eh. <laughs> it is what it is. You can get another one down the street that looks just like it. And it's just as good. But fine china. Delicate porcelain. It's fragile, but is of intense value. And he said, and that's the approach that we ought to see the weakness of woman. The weakness of the woman is actually her value. Generally speaking, in comparison to men, <coughs> women are more sensitive, emotional, more easily hurt by others, more intuitive, more romantic, more sentimental, and more able to vocalize aches and pains uh, in whatever form they come. We all know that one, right? <laughs> Anybody that's got a, that has or had a husband trying to get us to go to the doctor... God bless y'all. So, those are the things that, that on some level can be acknowledged as, as weakness. 
as a weakness of sorts, a sensitivity, emotional, etc. It can be a weakness, but again, it's a weakness that comes with incredible strength. It's a weakness, it's a vulnerability that really is the embodiment of the heart of God. Your weakness is the presence of God. That's a strength. And that's what the ultimate thing is here. And she, she goes through all of this, and, and, and what she finally gets to is the simple fact that the weaknesses that we see as characteristic of femininity, of women in general, again, generalized, generalized statements, but those are the ones that are most important in making the world continue to go forth. So you're bringing about the reign of Christ here and now. They are of absolute importance. It's only whenever we become weak that we truly become strong. To each of those weaknesses, she corresponds with ways that it actually becomes uh, a way to help men, <laughs> which we all know that. Complementarity of the sexes is, is something that's written into our hearts. Is the fact that men and women are, are built to complement each other in certain ways. The, the weaknesses of men are the strengths of women. It's the reality. So God put us together for a purpose. She talks about the frailty of women. Again, as a man, I feel like I shouldn't say that. <laughs> you know? I feel like I'm being derogatory. But she acknowledges that too. She acknowledges that, that, that it's not necessarily a, a, a frailty of, of, oh, in a way, I have to cheat you with kick gloves so you're not broken. Not necessarily that. But again, it's a sensitivity, it's, a, it's an awareness of frailty, of recognized the gift that lies before us. The fine china, that incredibly beautiful porcelain that lies before every man. It's that ability, that vulnerability that written in the heart of man, the heart of man is meant to respond, to protect, and to preserve. That's, you know, knights in shining armor, Every guy wants to be one, <laughs> you know. That's written into our hearts. And so part of the beauty is as you simply live as women, you don't have to do anything special. <laughs> you just have to be yourself. And it pulls forth from us virtue. You make men virtuous just by existing. <clears throat> you pull what is good out of us. And then you train us to cast out that which is bad. So you pull forth from us the desire to love the other, to protect the other, to serve the other, to cherish the other. In so many ways, it's pulled forth from the masculine heart. It's a great privilege, a great gift, a noble task. <laughs> a very important one. Is acknowledged that women are generally more emotional. <coughs> Seems to be a fact, huh? A lot of times, whenever we do the um, 
we do marriage preparation, and one of the one of the things is in each portion of the marriage preparation, there's the the last part kind of looks at personality traits, and the last one is 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 the E, emotional stability, and usually the men are like rocks, <laughs> you know, like the storm can come, and and most of the men they're just there, you know. But with women, usually the, the, the emotional stability is a little bit different. They're rocked a little bit by sensitivities of the world. They're rocked by the, the, the fact that, that things are happening around them, that others' lives are, 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 are suffering or impacted or whatever. And the woman's own emotional state is changed much more and much more easily based off of her surroundings than the man. And there's a value in that. Over and over, the, the scriptures, and she quotes, she quotes you know, numerous scriptures and, and, and writings of the church and, and various doctors and, and saints of the church, and talking about the value especially of tears. The value of tears. I love it. One of the things she said, she said that if you were able to capture the tears of every woman uh, in the course of history, they would compete with that of the oceans. <laughs> but if you captured every tears of those shed by men... It may as appear as a single small pond. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, you know, boys are taught, boys don't cry. Suck it up, man up, and go on. I mean, I know I've heard that. Boys don't cry. Some of it's externally imposed upon us because of our culture. But even within us, there's a reluctance. In the masculine heart, there's a, 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 a reluctance to let down the guard, to open the floodgates, in a sense, right? There's an unwillingness because it acknowledges our weakness. It acknowledges a weakness in man. I don't know if you notice it, if y'all notice that, but men don't like to acknowledge weakness. It's not our strong suit. We fight against it as strong as we can. And that's why whenever you see in the lives of the saints, usually, especially in the men, they wait, they wait, they wait, they wait, they wait, and then the tears come in so much great abundance all at the same time. It's like a baptism again by tears, conversion and sorrow. So when we see that the, the fullness of God being able to come and to speak in that particular moment, tears, emotion are not bad. They're incredibly good. What can seem as a weakness, being overly emotional, overly sensitive to things that are said, is a good thing. It's being responsive to others. Again, that same thing with being hurt by others. To be hurt by others basically means that we've already put ourselves out there in their hands. Men don't do that as much. But women, it's written into your heart to give of yourself, to put yourself out there in service, whether it's within your family, whether it's in your church, whether it's in the community, wherever there are women, there is selflessness. It's part of the feminine heart. And again, where you put yourself out there, you sometimes get burned. You sometimes get hurt. And more easily, and more intensely, 
because the heart of a woman doesn't just give of herself selflessly on the exterior. She gives of herself exterior on the interior as well. You give your heart. You put your heart into things. Not so much just the outside. You give yourself. You give yourself to others. And it's in doing that that we get wounded. Christ put himself out there for us. He put himself in flesh for us. And it wound up with a cross. And many of you have known crosses by that same action. How many times that your own gift of love, your own sign of love, has become a source of suffering for you. It's a weakness to be hurt by others. It's a weakness to be intuitive. To be intuitive recognizes the fact that I don't know how I know, but I know. It's the gut instinct. Men rely upon their heads. We have to reason things out. We've got to think things through. Give us the facts. Give us the stats. Give us the numbers. Give us the pictures. Give us the diagrams. But sometimes that's not enough. Especially in the Christian life, we recognize that rationality isn't the end-all, be-all. Rather, it's faith. A willingness to, to say, I don't exactly understand it all. But something in me says, keep going. Something in me presses forward. Something in me knows that something is happening. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I know it. I know it. It's that intuitive nature. The women are more romantic and sentimental. That you care about things, <laughs> right? That you connect with things. That things are not just things when it comes down to it. But they're connections to people. They're signs of relationships. They're signs of events. They're signs of realities that because you put yourself out there, because you put your whole self out there, and because you love so selflessly, selflessly, it comes into your heart. Little pictures on the, you know, on the on the fridge, right? <laughs> what mother hasn't looked upon those and kept them for years, right? Some of you might still have them, the little storage boxes. It's that desire to continue to celebrate the relationship even years after things have happened. And lastly, to be vocal and to acknowledge aches and pains. Again, not a strong suit of men, but of the woman. A weakness <laughs> that you acknowledge pain, <laughs> that you acknowledge aches, that you acknowledge needs. Every single one of those things, they're weaknesses in the sense that they acknowledge the fact that I'm not perfect. I'm not complete in myself. I have to rely upon somebody else. And it's for that reason the woman is by her very nature a sign of spiritual life, a religious entity. Again, we all know the fact you go to daily mass, women outnumber men, three to one, four to one, five to one, six to one, sometimes here, 12 to one, you know? <laughs> it's that religious heart of the woman 
not necessarily religious in, in, a, in a Catholic sense, but it's the, it's the fact that, that the womanly heart, the feminine heart, is more in tune and more able to understand the compassionate, merciful, loving heart of Christ that speaks and thus is able to connect with Him more easily because you're willing to put yourself out there. Whereas the men, we kind of hang back, hands in our pockets until we feel comfortable. I was laughing this morning. The first 30 people out of church, I think, were men because they were all in the back pews. <laughs> I was like, they all come stampede. I was like, good morning, gentlemen, you know. And then the ladies followed behind. It's <laughs> how things work, you know. The realities that we experience in a concrete way are indicative of the, <laughs> of the things of our heart, of the, of the things, the interior realities. <coughs> and so, um, very good. To put that into a concrete, uh, a concrete example, uh, she used the, the story of St. Scholastica uh, and, her, and her brother, St. Benedict. I'm not sure if, if, if you may have heard this story before. I love the, tell, I love the, I love the story itself. So, I mean, it's a, a great joy, and her, her feast was not long ago. Um, and the story of St. Scholastica, Scholastica and Benedict were, were, brother, were, they were siblings, brother and sister. And they both, in a religious community, you know, St. Benedict formed the Benedictines. He formed the, the monastic life uh, as we would know it in its, in its, ta- in its sense today. And St. Scholastica lived a similar uh, religious life herself. And so um, they would permit themselves, uh, I think it was one day each year, where they were able to get together because, you know, they each lived their religious life and they were pretty strict in their own observances of it. And they permitted themselves one day each year to be able to get together and simply enjoy each other's company. Just to enjoy life as brother and sister. And so that one day came <coughs> and they enjoyed the, enjoyed the course of the day. It was a beautiful day. And towards the end, St. Benedict's was about ready to go. And he said, okay, Scholastica, I need, to, I need to go back to the monastery. And she said, no, Benedict, please stay. Please stay and talk. Let us continue to share heart to heart what's going on. Let us speak with one another. He said, no, I, I need to go back to the monastery. As part of the rule, I have to go back. I can't stay the night outside. She said, please stay. And he was hard-headed in his resolution to go back. And so she quietly bowed her head and prayed. And in that moment, a great thunderstorm came. <laughs> and it was so bad that he looked outside and he was like, so what are we talking about? <laughs> you know? And he knew he wasn't going anywhere. And so he stayed. And they spoke through the course of the night. And they spoke heart to heart. The following morning, he got up and he went back to the monastery. It was shortly after that he was in prayer in his cell and he looked out and he saw a dove flying up to heaven. And he knew in the depths of his heart that his sister had died and that was her soul ascending. I think it's a striking example because it exactly shows the gift present here in the weakness that she intuited that it was the last meeting they would have on this earth. She desired to speak with him, heart to heart, to love him, 
to give herself one last time to her brother in exchange to be able to spend time together, to reminisce, to love and to be loved. She poured out tears too. It was part of that, part of that prayer. She poured out tears asking God to grant her request. And then it came. So she showed her weakness in that moment. And it conquered the heart of God. And it won more time to visit with her brother. But I think the interesting part is how her brother responded and began to manifest so many of those things in his own heart. That intuition was manifested in his heart and recognized that his sister had died. That desire to reach out and to love her, to respond to her love with a love himself, to acknowledge it, to rejoice with her and over her. How he began, in a way, to be a little bit more shaped, to be a little bit more human, a little bit more holy and healthy on account of her witness. It was the weakness of Scholastica that helped increase the weakness or the strength as we see it of Benedict. Again, complementarity that we have to have one another. She continues from there acknowledging again the fact that whenever we talk about weakness, when we approach it from that secular view that, that, that has the, the weakness as a negative, the weakness as less, all those things, of course we're going to see it as bad. Of course we should reject that. But in the Christian worldview, in the Christian, in the Christian lens of things, we have to acknowledge that weakness is one of the great gifts of God. Again, any of you who have come to the talk of mercy... God is love. And what is mercy? Love that pierces its own, that, that, whose heart is pierced for love of the other and then does something about it. God is love. God is mercy. God is compassion. Those are not strong suits of men. Right? That's the feminine gift to exercise those things most fully. And that's what Christ shows to us. He shows us those things. He shows us, as Second Philippian talks about, how he humbled himself. Christ took on the form of a servant, the form of a slave. He came in the likeness of men, as one of us with flesh on. Not just as a, not just as a God up in the sky, but as one of us, a person. He humbled himself. He became weak. He emptied himself of his power and his glory. And it's in the emptiness that he saved us. It's in his weakness that he saved us. Weakness indeed becomes the strength of how many times weakness is exalted in the Christian faith. That the Pope is referred to as the servant of the servants of God. The servant of the servants. Again, humility, weakness. The highlight upon, once again, mercy. That it's in serving others, that in lowering ourselves and acknowledging our weakness and our need for others, that we win out our salvation. 
that we gain God's grace, that we gain his life. Humility is the crown of the virtues. It's the foundational virtue, and it's the height of our virtues. In a great sense, it's like the Eucharist, where Jesus humbles himself. It's the source and the summit, both and. It's the foundation of all things, and yet it's the height. And Mary shows us that too, in her great humility. Recognizing, I'm just a handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done. Thy will be done, Father. Thy will be done. Jesus learned that well as he was in the garden himself. Let it be done, Father. If the cup can pass, okay, let it. But thy will be done. Certainly learned some of that earthly humility from a beautiful model in the Blessed Mother. A lot of times we think that Jesus just came among us and and (coughs) everything was just naturally there. But we forget he was human. (laughs) Babies don't just come out of the womb and exercise virtue, right? They have to be disciplined. They have to be trained. They have to be taught. They have to be encouraged. They have to be formed. And how much the Blessed Mother did that was transformative in shaping the earthly character of the Lord Jesus. Beautiful images there. And ultimately, again, weakness is that, is that reflection that we are... Utterly and entirely reliant upon someone other than me. We're reliant in a Christian in a Christian worldview. We are reliant upon the Lord for every single grace that we have, uh, and so the uh, the feminine heart explains that and, and kind of manifests that um, simply through the course of her days. And so that brings to, to to mind the spiritual mission of the feminine heart. In either ors. The womanly heart prefers the concrete over the abstract, the individual over the universal, the personal over the impersonal, the whole thing over a piece or part. Ultimately, all of that acknowledges the fact that that the womanly heart doesn't want something that's cold. She wants something that's alive, personal. The whole person, not just a piece or a part. Not just an idea, but someone, an other, with whom to interact, to acknowledge, to love, to give, to serve. It's the womanly heart that acknowledges all of those things. And one of the most important is an attitude of receptivity. I think this is one of the trademarks of women... um, that has such immense, you know, immense um, implications. It's receptivity. And I've kind of, I've, I've used, you know, um, examples and homilies before of, you know, how a woman can walk into a room and walk out of a room, and ten years later, they'll still be able to recount, like what picture was on the wall, like what shirt you were wearing that day, like. The, the things that no manly mind would even acknowledge the fact exists, a woman receives and takes in. Again, there's exceptions. But it's that acknowledgement of the receptivity, of being able to take in, not just a part, but the whole. 
a concrete situation, a lived reality, of how someone, a woman, is much more able to simply go up to someone and, and recognize something's going on. I don't know what it is, again, intuition. <laughs> but I'm going to ask, love. Whereas a man walks up and goes, hey, how's it going? All right, cool, well, I'm going to go, <laughs> you know? If we don't get an immediate response of, I'm not doing so well, a lot of time, the masculine response is, okay, I'm going to go, you know? You don't need me to do something. If you're not going to say it, I can't intuit it. We all know that. And so it's that the receptivity of woman that is one of her most beautiful trademarks. She's able to simply receive. To receive with love. To receive whole and entire. To accept. To accept others. One of the things in, in uh, Gertrude von Lefort's book on the eternal woman is that um, she was talking about creativity and how woman has the greatest gift, the greatest about, uh, value for creativity because it's in the womb of woman that a child is created. And the, same, the, the, the simple fact is that, that, upon, in, that within every single one of us, none of us is truly creators. We are co-creators. We work with God to create something, most especially in the gift of human life. But also, none of us actually have even the power to create unless it's first given to us. And scriptures speak to that. Right? What, gift have you, what gift do you have that you haven't first received? So we must first be able to receive before we can allow the gift to be made use of. It's the whole Christian life, huh? We have to receive God's grace first, and then we can make use of it and allow it to work. And the woman is especially attuned to that because your heart is built to receive. Your heart is built to, to take in and to accept and to acknowledge and to love. And because of that, God works in such mysterious ways through the hearts of women. Again, you have a special place in God's plan. Not just a couple of people with over the stations of the cross. Every single woman has a special part in the plan of God as he carries it out. In co-creating not just human life, but spiritual life, divine life. I put a little cards in the back of the church today. Um, Novena prayers for lapsed Catholics. Uh, it's basically praying for people to come home. Uh, I didn't mention that, uh, but I just kind of quietly stuck it in there with all the confession materials. Uh, so, But what's interesting to me is I can probably only count a handful of times where I've had discussions with men about their desire for family members to come back to the church. Partly because men don't express the aches and pains, but partly because men aren't always as receptive to that, you know. But I can't even, I can't even think how many count, toes and fingers that I would have to have to know that how many women have come to say the same. 
It's almost daily. Pray for my son, for my daughter, my grandson, my granddaughter, my niece, my nephew, my neighbor. This guy down the street, I don't know his name, but he's not at church. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm serious. <laughs> you know? The desire is that strong. Your reception of God's grace is that strong, and it's working, and it's channeling God's grace and His love in that many directions. To allow God's life first to be received and then to be given. You are built to receive. And it's by your grace that the church continues to sustain itself. Rather be sustained by God. To let yourself be poured out after having received. The next section she gets into is feelings. Feelings are essentially the, the heart manifested, um, the heart that becomes manifest in action is, is the ultimate goal. Because a lot of times we say feelings, and feelings can seem as a negative thing. You know, it, it can be seen, and, and uh, again, how many times I've had um, specifically ladies come into confession and apologize for crying. Apologize for crying. I wish I could cry. (laughs) If I could have that gift, I would gladly take it. Don't apologize. The feelings are there for a purpose. The spiritual life isn't all about feelings. It's it's not about that we're just driven entirely by our feelings and our emotions. That that would be a a kind of a horrible train wreck of a spiritual life because we'd be up and down, up and down, and based off of everything around us. But important are the emotions for us because they help us to understand where is our heart. What's going on inside of me? You know, caught me off guard last week at the, at the Bible study. The last question was something about what do you what do, you do with desires? And I was like, oh, oh gosh. And I, and it, yeah, I had to sit there and think for a minute. I was like, you got to give a rational, reasonable response to this, Brent. It's got to be clear and coherent, you know. That was my immediate response to a question on desires, on feelings, on emotions. How can I speak about it rationally? You know? That's what happened. And yet, it's an important piece to acknowledge the feelings in our heart because they speak something. It's our heart doing something, it's our heart responding in some way, positive, negative, or in the middle, whatever. And it shows us that that there's something happening within us. Something that we might need to address. Something that the Lord may be inviting us to address that we haven't wanted to before. Something to acknowledge in somebody else. To encourage us to move out towards the other. The feelings are the heart of the person. Emotions. It gets to the core of the human person. And especially to speak of the heart to acknowledge, as, as we've said before, that, that the man is the head of the family, but the woman is the heart. She's the thing that pumps all the blood, <laughs> that keeps us going. It's the important part. The heart of the family. Not only to keep things going, but to be love in the heart of the family. To be love. She interestingly also, uh, again, some of the, some of the unique things that, that, I, that my mind doesn't think about but that the feminine mind does. And she talked about how even too in the devotional life of the church, we have the honor of the sacred heart of Jesus, the immaculate heart of Mary. 
but we don't have the honor of the sacred brain of God, right? We don't honor the rationality of Jesus. We honor his love. We honor the feminine characteristic that is present in Christ, not the masculine one. Important things to notice in the life of the church. If how we're supposed to be able to take note of all these things and continue, continue to, uh, to embody them as much as possible. <coughs> she continues from feelings to the female body itself. And she acknowledges the fact that, first of all, that the sexual organs of a woman are all hidden. They're veiled. Unlike that of a male. And that's an important part because the physical speaks to spiritual reality. That there's a mystery. There's an importance. There's a sense of protection because of the value of what's contained therein and of what takes place there. The fact that God comes to be able to bring life in the womb of a mother. In the womb of a mother. Another insight that she said, when we talk about life, we recognize that human life begins at conception. But human life isn't just human life. It's not just the physical stuff. There's a soul that has to be placed there as well. And in the conception of every person, the soul is placed there by God. So in the womb of every woman who has ever born a child, God has literally touched your womb. Has touched you and given the spirit, given the soul of a child to rest within you. That any woman who has ever born a child has born two souls in her body at once. Profound reality. That's something I can never imagine. I mean, from the outside, I could, I could share with my sisters the joy of their pregnancy. Certainly there were trials too. But the joy, seeing the kicks, you know, feeling the body. You know, that kind of stuff. I could experience that from the outside, but there's no way I can ever experience that myself. There's no way I'll be able to to understand that. I can sit and pray in the chapel until the day that I die, but I won't be able to have that unique insight into the work of God in your very flesh. Again, an incredible gift. She acknowledges and she kind of concludes that section with a recognition. Then the prayer that we prayer, the, 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 the prayer, the prayer that we prayer. Come on, Brent. <laughs> the prayer that we pray countless times a day. And we pray the rosary and we resort to it in various other ways is that of the Hail Mary, which exalts the womb of, the mer- of, of a mother. Rather than to reject femininity, it highlights and we exalt it. The fruit of thy womb, Jesus, God himself, is the fruit of the womb. She continues there from the body to the mystery of femininity itself. And this is where she kind of gives a recap of everything. The great mystery of femininity contains... Countless, countless gifts and mysteries to contemplate. But first of all, uh, motherhood. 
again, being co-creators, excuse me, and being dwelling places of another soul, another life. To so be willing to give of yourself that you receive even in flesh. One such author said that motherhood is a sign of God's tenderness. It's a sign of God's tenderness. That a woman is able to love selflessly, without counting cost, over and over and over again. Much to the confusion and sometimes absolute ignorance of the men whom they love. I'll give you a concrete sign of God's love through a woman. Some of y'all know Katie, my little spiritual daughter. Um, she came to Mass yesterday, and, and she came, and she was, she was helping me to, to kind of sift through some of the insights here. Uh, so you can, you can say a little prayer for Katie, too, and thanking her for helping me to make sense of, of all of this. But she came, and she made, she made dinner while I, was, while I was reading through some of this stuff and trying to compile notes. And so she, she showed me love by cooking dinner. It was delicious. And she didn't mean to, but she so, she so loved by the fact that the house now smells good whenever I walk inside. I'm like, it still smells like dinner. It's so amazing. <laughs> I sent her a text message to set that. Um, that she was praying for me as she did that. That she was praying for me as she was going home, knowing that I was having a, you know, to contain the preparations for this presentation itself. And then today after I had lunch, I went to the freezer to go get some ice cream I gotta have ice cream after lunch, right? <laughs> and lo and behold, she even left me ice cream from last night. She could have taken it home, <laughs> but she left it because she knew I liked it. It seems small. It seems petty, you know. Something that, that that's not really, you know, that's not a a, a magnificent sign of uh, of love, like dying on the cross or you know taking a bullet for somebody. Thankfully, we're not called to those usually. <laughs> but there was concrete signs of love. The little things. The little ways of sowing care and concern for the other. And it was in, in, in praying with all this that I was able to acknowledge it and recognize it. Not just to walk in and go, ooh, ice cream. You know? <laughs> but to turn back and say, thank you. Thank you for, you know, for loving me and not taking the ice cream with you. Not that that's a sign of love, but <laughs> again, ice cream is very important. I don't know if y'all know this. So it's that love that's shown, that seeks to focus on the other, to let ourselves be in the background, to be selfless, to be serving, to be receptive of others' needs and desires and wants, and to seek to acknowledge to acknowledge him first, and so often to try to do something about it. To do something, to say something, to offer prayers, right? Those three degrees of mercy we've talked about. Deeds, words, and prayers. And the feminine heart has such a gift for it. Every single one of you, as you, as you sit here, I'm sure you could add a thousand other things to the list. Concrete situations. Ways that you've shown love. Ways that you've received love from others. Ways that your mothers have taught you love. Your grandmothers have taught you love. Your aunts. Your own children. And that's part of the beauty of it. 
continue to show the mystery, to exalt the mystery. She ended on the fact that, as has often been said, when a soldier is dying in the midst of battle, so often the last person he cries out for is mom. It's not dad. It's not uncle so-and-so. Not grandpa. Mom. Mom. I know I felt that for my own self. Mom. In times of need, I call mom. When something's difficult, I call mom. When I need to cry, I call mom. <laughs> you know, it's mom who's there. The heart of a mother. How even in the pious devotion and life of the church, again, I love how she ties them all together, the, the devotion and the piety of the church, together with our lived experience in the secular realm. How often, too, on the dying lips of the saints of the church, the first word is Jesus, but the last word is Mary. Jesus and Mary. The last lip, the name of mother, crying out for help. Jesus and Mary, call us home. Jesus and Mary, help us to love. Jesus and Mary, be with us. Be with me now. Help. Right? That's the privilege of being a mother. That your weakness is the strength of God. Incredible gift. So many mysteries that take place in your hearts mothers in your wombs. It's a, a great mystery that we're called to contemplate and continue to enter into. Unfortunately, it's not always recognized in our world today. And so we continue to do our best to exalt woman to a rightful place. To acknowledge the goodness that lies in every feminine heart. To recognize that being the second sex isn't bad. It's not negative. It's better. Be the weaker sex isn't bad. It's better. All these things seen through the eyes of Christ our Lord, the eyes of the church who is our mother. And so ask that Mary and all the saints and angels will watch over us and help us to embody these things even more fully for the women who are present to be able to rejoice in the gift of their femininity, to celebrate womanhood in their own flesh and in their own life and in their own love. And they might be able to show us, men, what it is to love, what it is to have something of the heart of God, the love of God, a work within our own lives as well. And so we ask that the Lord would continue to bless each and all of us, man and woman both, that we might be able to all draw closer to the loving heart of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, to whom glory be forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.